are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Hey, Dr. Peterson here. Before we begin, we have a very real interview with a survivor of human trafficking, life on the streets, substance abuse, and recovery. We recognize that this may be triggering for some of our listeners and advise you to use caution when listening. If you or someone you know is a victim of human trafficking, you may reach out to the U.S. National Trafficking Hotline by calling 1-888-373-7888 or text BEFREE to 233-733. That is text BEFREE to 233-733. Now to the show. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are so excited. We have a fantastic guest with us today, January Riggins, and we are going to talk about End the Silence, What Physicians Need to Know About Human Trafficking and Addiction. So from the Polaris Project website, human trafficking is a global issue. It's based on exploitation. Traffickers prey on those who are most vulnerable. Every country is affected by human trafficking. In the U.S., there were more than 8,500 tips reported to the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline in 2017. More than 30% of those involved children under the age of 18. Unfortunately, trafficked persons often go unnoticed. A 2014 study published in the Annals of Health Law found that nearly 88% of participants identified as sex trafficking survivors had some contact with healthcare while being exploited. And then a 2017 survey from the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking found that over half of labor and sex trafficking survivors surveyed had accessed healthcare at least once while being trafficked. Nearly 97% indicated they had never been provided information or resources about human trafficking while visiting a healthcare provider. Both of those, I think, studies just underscore how important it is as physicians and healthcare providers that we recognize this. There was a really fantastic article I read. This came from the AMA Journal of Ethics in 2017 on addiction and human trafficking. I'm coming directly from them. So it says addiction has a complex relationship with human trafficking. It can exacerbate a a trafficked person's vulnerability. It can be part of a captor's means of coercing a captive person to submit, be a means of incentivizing a captive person to remain captive. A couple of studies, there was one that showed in Maine found that 66% of its clients reported that substance use led to being trafficked, while only 4.5% reported that it arose after being trafficked. I think that's really interesting. And then a broader survey of U.S. survivors of sex trafficking found that 84.3% used substance use during their trafficking exploitation. Alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine were each used by more than 50% of respondents, with nearly a quarter, 22.3%, used heroin. In the midst of our opiate crisis, opiates are particularly effective as a coercion tool. 
for traffickers because they numb both emotional and physical pain. Clinicians have noted clear links between the current U.S. opiate epidemic and trafficking. That is so key. Some traffickers recruit directly from substance use disorder treatment facilities, i.e. methadone clinics. Moreover, high rates of opiate overdose deaths underscore the potentially lethal consequence of an opiate addiction for trafficked persons. Therefore, as in this case, opiate addiction in and of itself may be a red flag for clinicians to screen for trafficking. That, that's why this is just so important that we learn about this and know more about this. So I am just going to turn it over to Paula to introduce our guest. Again, cannot thank January enough for being here. And I forgot to mention, this was new to me, the month of January that when we're recording this in is... National Human Trafficking Awareness Month. Okay, Paula. All right, January. This is such an honor to have her. Okay, I'm going to read a bio and then we're going to get going because she is the star of the show. So January is a survivor of trafficking and exploitation, domestic violence, addiction, and the criminal justice system, as well as a lifetime of trauma. She is the founder of Soap to Hope, nonprofit organization. Soap to Hope helps build awareness, offers resources, and advocates for women, men, and teenagers who have been sexually exploited, sex trafficked, and working in the high-risk sex trade. Individuals who are facing addictions, abuse, and trauma in our local vulnerable community in Salt Lake City, Utah, Soap to Hope provides night outreach with harm reduction strategies. She is in the fight to advocate for victims and survivors who are forgotten. She helps raise awareness in our community with women who are suffering behind our city light. She is the co-chair of Victim Services of Human Trafficking Subcommittee with Utah Trafficking in Person as a Survivor's Voice. She's on the board of directors of Hope on Tap organization, which provides mobile outreach, testing, treatment, and education. January started this nonprofit to be a voice for the voiceless. She wanted to bridge the gap between services and help others navigate resources with survivor peer support and effective case management, meeting people where they're at. She has 15 years in recovery and healing that has been one of the hardest journeys she has walked facing her own story. The silence almost killed her and she believes silence was her first trafficker due to childhood trauma. She wants to be in the fight against silence and be a voice. She loves music, art, dancing, playing sports, writing, and helping others find hope. She shares her story to benefit others in her shoes and break the chains of exploitation in all areas of her life that held her hostage. And I just want to say, it's going to be hard to not be emotional. Just watching January in action in the community of Salt Lake is just such an inspiration. I met January working with a bridge program where we provide rapid access to buprenorphine to people in an emergency department. And all of the peer support staff who worked in that program were just incredible. But I noticed that the clients who had January as their peer always showed up. They always made it to their follow-up appointment. There was something about the connection that she had with them. So I got to know her a little bit and I found out what she did the rest of her life all of her life and found out a little bit about her story. And it's just amazing to me that that she's here with us, that you're such a survivor, January, and that you are the, a true voice for people who we are just, we don't see them, like you said. And it horrifies me that as a medical community, we are neglecting to care for and identify and reach out and really help people who are in a situation that is really, truly horrific. Thank you so much for coming to 
educate us and educate our listeners, whether they're criminal justice who really need to hear this, medicine really need to hear this, behavioral health learners. Thank you again. And we want to know kind of what you want to tell us, what you want us as medical providers to know about people who are trafficked. I think a lot of us know this term and, and we're taught very little about it. I think I had zero lectures in medical school about human trafficking, zero Lectures Agreed. about sex work and sex exploitation. Only in residency and maybe now, there's a few articles dribbling out about be aware of human trafficking. And I'm like, well, what is that? How do I know? What do I look for? And then to hear your story, to meet your people on the street with you and to hear the survivor's stories, you just realize, wow, it's it, there's a lot to be learned and we need to do a lot better. I, I almost started getting emotional when you were reading that bio. And I think sometimes uh, I have a hard time still facing my story. And it's such in the past that like some days I'm like, oh, yeah, that story can still get me to drop to my knees. And I forget that I'm on a path of healing. And I and I, I think it's an honor to be a voice and to educate and bring awareness to um, trafficking. And I'll be honest with you, I did not know that that was part of my story till about four years ago. And when I had to face that part, like I was really good at facing, obviously, the addiction, the criminal behaviors, the poverty I was raised in, and the community I surrounded myself with. And, and obviously, law enforcement in the community didn't let me forget that piece, right? They're like, you're going to prison. Hey, you now have felony charges. Hey, you now have possession charges. Hey, you now that part of my story was very loud. The trauma part of my story was not loud. Everybody thought something was wrong with me instead of asking me what happened to me. And I believe my life would have changed if somebody would have asked me that in several instances, I was in a lot of medical situations, not only with Planned Parenthood, being in an abortion clinic at a very young age by myself, no consent, having a baby at a really young age, STD treatment, pain, all those things were there, right? Like I went in for those things, right? Like you, nobody asked me, right? I walked in there and was able to disclose enough information for them to be willing and have cash on hand and then walking out of there totally different because nobody noticed me. And that's where I say silence is my first trafficker where like I, if nobody else seen these and nobody else said anything and nobody else was going to protect me, I felt very unnoticed, unwanted, worth help, worth services, or worth the time to ask maybe a few other questions, I learned to stay very silent and really hold that trauma captive. And then it in return held me hostage. And, and I'm learning. And not only from you guys on the other side is that I really used to be like, oh, naive and they didn't like me. And it's just that they didn't notice me. And they thought I was some junkie and criminal. And really, the truth is, is I just don't think it's being taught. You know, there's a lot of pelvic pain, there's bruising, there's, hey, this person is coming repeatedly in for STD. There's, you know, I, I don't think it's like us against them, or we are them. I do believe that there's just needs to be more awareness and education, because I have been in these situations. And I hate to say the system failed me, because that's just kind of like that go to you know, a lot of survivors are not willing to come forward with their story yet. And we have to respect that too, right? A lot of them, that is something I, I'm going to tell you when that part of my story came out, I was 10 years in recovery from addiction and I wanted to commit suicide with that piece, right? Being this girl that is very weak and consenting to this abuse, being manipulated. I thought these people were like my street family. 
And I needed, uh, my vulnerabilities were exposed, right? Like I was already a full-blown addict at the age of like 12 and 13. I was already in poverty. I was already uh, sexually active from sexual trauma from when I was younger. I was attracted to older men at a really young age from my sexual trauma. And I didn't know, I had no idea that this, this was something going on in my life. Like I was like, oh, I'm doing this because I need this substance. This person has what I need. And there's this exchange going on and this mutual agreement. And then there was times I had nowhere else to go. And so they provided some shelter or safety or food. Mine's a female trafficker. And most traffickers have a female in this situation somehow as a recruiter, a groomer, a lead, as you would say, because women trust women more sometimes in those situations, right? Like they can lure them in. And the truth is, is those women have been trafficked too. And okay. that's all they know. That this Okay, this is amazing. And I hate to stop you, but we need I need to just stop for a second and, and like go back on this. So you're really like, you're telling us about all these vulnerabilities you had. You were such a vulnerable child. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people who end up being trafficked or that's why they end up being targeted and groomed. I find I didn't know this, that um, terrible crimes, that there's a female involved with recruitment. I, like, I didn't know that. And so t can you tell, tell us more about that? And like, why do you, you said it's because they've been trafficked themselves? And then how do they get into that role? And I mean, if you're okay talking about that, because I, I think know, that's really I, important for us to understand. And I, I need to understand it. Right. And you know, trafficking rings, it's not one size fits all, right? Uh, you know, there are so many levels of traffickers, high end traffickers, businessmen, there's rings, there's gang involvement, there's low end pimping, there is partnership, uh, familiar trafficking with families trafficking their children in other countries, like families even sell their children to survive. I'm not like, I don't speak for the like trafficking community, right? In that sense, where so many stories, you could never sift through how many stories I've heard of different trafficking where I make more money off of selling women or children or vulnerable communities than drugs now, right? Like we even have some of our, that like it's such an overlap of criminal activity and issues that are going on. But yes, mostly I find from most of the survivors I talk to, and it's not all, like I said, but there's a female involved. And I, my opinion, and from my own experience with my female trafficker is that there's a trust factor with other women. And, and if you are from the high-risk youth community, homeless youth community, you are exposed and you are looking for parental figures you're looking for some kind of belong and love and support, right? Like, and we find that with certain identities that we relate to. And if mostly if that's a female and are we looking for maternal, people are looking for father figures because fathers have been missing or whatever, like they are more attracted to the men. And I have my big role to play in that. I, as being out there, I have been a recruiter and a groomer, right? Where And it's not even in the sense that I knew what was going on. It was like, hey, I am getting, I'm doing this and I'm getting what I need. 
right? Even if it's the substance that I'm looking for that night or that day. And it's hard to not bring that resource to somebody that is desperate and their vulnerabilities are exposed also, right? Like is somebody you know that's withdrawing or, you know, surviving. And I'm like, hey, like I do this. Do you want to come be a part of this with me? And and to wake up now and owning that piece of the story is the part that still can rock me to my core, right? Where I was like, was I a recruiter? Was I a groomer? Or was I, it was all I knew. Like, was it all I knew? Yeah, it was all you knew. And you were just, you were surviving. You were in your environment just surviving. I mean, you were there for all the multitude of reasons that you just kind of touched on, right? You ended, you had adverse childhood and all of these things and landed you in the situation. And you just said you only really realized it a few years ago. Now, looking back of what it really was. Right. And yeah, like I said, we didn't use those words back then, right? Like really, in reality, we still don't use some of those words. Like a lot of people still go to child pornography when they're talking about some of these things, when it's child rape, right? Like it's molestation with a family member. No, it's incest, right? Mm -hmm. Like we still kind of sugarcoat some of these areas That's where like I want to be a voice like that in that silence is that we really need to start using the correct words. And thank God they started to change that. Like there can't be such a thing of child prostitution, right? This girl is being exploited. She's being, she's being exposed. She's being uh, trafficked when they're under like 17 and younger. And you might see them, uh, you know, at some point, some say curbside, curbside selling, right? We don't use the word prostitution, you know, prostitution, or if we see people, you know, high risk sex workers or sex workers um, doing street work, they're trying to change some of that language now, like we are not arresting our youth for being child prostitutes anymore. Like, you know what I mean? We are now seeing them as victim and seeing them as there's something going on if this 16-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old is out here and we need to identify that and we need to get them resources and we need to get them advocacy and we need to get them awareness and supported services. We can be very defiant out there too, right? Like there was a lot of people that approached me and I was like, get away from me. This is my life. And I really had that junkie pride in the sense of I'm making a decision. This is my choice. Nobody's making me do this. If you had my life, you what would you be doing too? You know what I mean? Like the, all those changes of words now that I've really had to own where I was like, oh, I was just doing that oppositional, right? Like I was just shattered with my thought process. Like my thought process was I, I yeah. very uneducated, very untreated, mental health, addiction, all those things that led me in this path, right? And then learned to traffic myself. Mm-hmm. Like I learned to exploit myself and feeling like that was my only solution, right? Like I was an obj- object, Being an object became really easy being from having molestation or these things. Like I was already commodity to area of my life. And I looked at myself like that. My sexuality, my body, my mind, my voice was all ripped from me at a really young age. Wow. So that's, so it's just seeing yourself as that it was not easy, but that was the kind of the natural transition to just going from being in the street family, having this group that now you reflect back on, we're just exploiting you and getting what they needed. And then to the point where you just had, you were stripped down, no sense of self, you saw yourself as an object where you just exploited yourself. And that was who you were. I mean, that's how you survived too, right? Right. Because at that point, you said you had started using drugs early. And so that played a role in it. How did that play a role in it for you? Oh, yeah. I When I have to look at the intersector or the integration of my 
addiction played a huge role in that for me that I was already full-blown addict, IV drug user, and needing this substance that you're addicted to physically, mentally, and emotionally, but then trying to avoid and cover up a lot of what was going on through the day had become this like winning reward. <laughs> I, I don't know how to say that, like a, an, a, hmm. like an, a win of the day where if you have slept with multiple men, if you've been beat, or if those were very aggressive dates or these situations, that drug, that substance was actually the win of the day. It was the where, win. Yeah, it was the mm-hmm. win of the day. And it was for me to have 15 years in recovery is an emotional place for me. And I believe in all pathways of recovery. Um, uh, and that's a huge, it's a huge passion of for me to still be a voice for that. But I, I have, I have practiced abstinency for 15 years. And I think a part of my trauma has a play in that, right? Like I am so afraid to put myself in a high risk situation because I know what has happened to me under the influence and I know what I've done for that influence and it emotionally breaks me down where it's been freeing for me to be an advocate for all pathways but that I have not put a substance in my body for 15 years and I couldn't go about three minutes without putting something in my body. Wow amazing how did you how did you get to that point? Correction system (laughs) law enforcement I was, I've always been forced into recovery. I'm not from Utah. I'm from Colorado, not Utah. When I came out here, when I expired, my criminal or my prison sentence in Colorado was the first state to ever offer me treatment service out of all the places I've been. I was able to start that path, but it was still through a law enforcement. It was being arrested and going in front of a justice court system and then saying, hey, you can go to treatment for 90 days or you go to... It was the first time I've ever had a choice. And out of all the times that I've gone in front of law enforcement, I've always been offered jail, prison, or some kind of criminal criminal justice program to fix me because <laughs> I'm a delinquent or I'm a problem or I am a menace to society. I went to an all-women's uh, treatment program in Davis County with Davis Behavioral Health, the Women's Recovery Center, back when it was, I want to say, 12-step orientated. I struggled, right, because I have a female trafficker. I've been in prison with women surrounding me for years. My mom is one, uh, my, one of my abusers, and I love that woman. Nobody can tell me. I, I've built such a powerful relationship with her now. Me urinating at a really young, like at seven years old, still in my, like from the sexual abuse, or why is this guy always wanting to come over when you're gone? Why are you letting him come over when I'm gone? Why do you tell me I have to answer the door for him when I don't want to, right? Like I felt, and there was, I really held her hostage to that story of mine. I really had this list going of, I'm not going to make it very long, so I might as well just, I'll show you all hurt me. And I just really treated people that way also. Wow. Well, I mean, it, it makes sense. I think <laughs> <laughs> You're kind of hot on yourself and I, it's, you, you're here as an amazing series of events as a truly have kind of come out the other end. And not only have you come out the other end, you're done, you're doing so many amazing things, but you are amazing. 
you know, it's not what you do, January. Like you, you truly are an amazing person, and you're very brave. You were forced into treatment, but it, it worked. And we know that that people who are forced into treatment often stop using, right? So it's kind of one of the one of the good things about people who are forced into treatment, and it's one of the sad things about the fact that sometimes the only access people have to treatment is through the criminal justice system. Oh, that's yeah, that's a heartbreaking one, and it did work. And I do say at the time. I don't know if I was just so beat down by that time, right? Like, I mean, after serving a decade in a correction system and this abuse that happened inside that system going in there so young and, and you know, when I share this, when I speak with law enforcement and I get to be on really cool platforms to bring awareness that like I was trafficked by a badge when I went into a correction facility at 16, right? Like I was very vulnerable, exposed, no family support, very poverty, didn't wasn't a person that had lots of money on their books and was able to buy everything. So I was very, those like all those vulnerabilities that were exposed on the streets were in the system too. And so I was very taken advantage of in there on different factors, not only with gangs, but with the badge. And and I resorted back to old behaviors. I Maybe I'll get what I want if I give this guard my body. If I do this for this person, maybe I'll get heroin while I'm in there, right? Like I went in there using one substance for a long time and really adamant about like, I would never touch that one. And I came out a full-blown opioid addict and never touched it before I went in there. That's tragic. And it's tra- like you said, you were trafficked by the badge. And I know you've told me this, some of the horrific stories. And I mean, I don't know why I'm naive to that kind of thing, but it was really, it's really distressing to me that that happened to you. And I'm sorry that happened to you, but that that's happening to people that there's not safety where there should be safety. They're breaking down from inside out, right? They're they're at full capacity. There's not enough training. There's not enough pay for these people. There's not enough programs going into these places. There's not enough education going on. There's not enough awareness. When I had to own my story, and I'll tell you this, at four years, four years ago, when um, this happened for me, um, I call it the smell of trauma. I was in a gas station and this guy walked in and he had BO and smelled really like oil and grease and junkyard and very, I don't know how it happened, right? Where um, when I left there, that was such a trigger and such a smell that spiraled me out. Like I couldn't move for four days. I was in a full-blown panic. I was in full-blown anxiety. I was in full-blown trauma. I was in full-blown flashbacks. And that's where all this came being exploited and trafficked and raped and, and sold and exchanged and was very a part of the exchange. Like I was I I said yes, right? I said yes to these situations because I needed that substance. I needed that shelter. I needed that food. I needed that love. I need. I would comb my hair. She would bathe me sometimes when I was so frail and de- malnutritioned and beat. Some days, like she would bathe me and braid my hair and and come look for me. And I loved her. Like I had an actual love for my abuser. And so when all this came out in this purge. I guess you would say from this smell, I, it really spiraled me out. Like I, uh, I, I was pretty ready to commit suicide and I set it all up. Like I exchanged, I put money in my people's hands that I love to take care of my daughter. Like I was very, and I was so violently mad. Like I wanted to go hurt 
people where I was like, I have already have had so much damage, right? Like, you know, not only domestic violence and abuse in my home, and then now this that I'm owning, and then what the addiction does, and then already buried a child. And I've, I'm now fighting for recovery. And this is what recovery is giving me this like trauma pocket of I need to I don't I don't want to swallow this one. I'm done. Like I felt beat down. I was like, I do not want to swallow another piece of my story. Like oh, this yeah. is enough. So much. I mean, that just it just threw you right back into the trauma, right? You had been in order to survive, you had put that all away, and then it all just came back. Your brain just brought it all back to you for whatever reason for you to process. Then, even though it felt so overwhelming, and oh yeah, and I, but and then yeah. what the crazy part about it was, I was, so, I was afraid to get help because of all the systems that I've gone to that said something's wrong with you. You're just a dope fiend. You're an addict. Oh, now you're going to relapse. Oh, now you like, we shouldn't be around you. You're at risk. Like even some of my recovery community, they stopped Mm. hanging out with me because they thought I was a risk for their own recovery path, which is obviously I started Soap to Hope. And I had some people in my recovery community that rode a very dark wave at that time with me. I I mean, to be honest with you guys, like where I was like, oh yeah, I do know that. That story I've been blocking out, that was something I really was proud of back then. Yeah, I'm going to go back to that girl and I'm okay with this and I'm, I'm done. <laughs> That's her. Oh, I was like, goodness. I'm done doing recovery and healing. I'm like, it, it really challenged me because I, I didn't take the supported services that I needed to probably where I should have probably went in and back in and maybe saw a therapist or behavioral or maybe got in on some other systems. But I've already been treated so small in those systems that I kind of did it alone. It's amazing to me, like there's the trauma itself of being trafficked and being in that variant. Well, there's the awfulness of being a child, poverty, abuse, mm-hmm. you know, incest, all of the things that set people up to be very vulnerable humans and children for trafficking. And then the, the hard that is being trafficked and then having to deal with it afterwards, right? Trying to heal and trying to dig into all of that pain and trauma that you have to then figure out, well, okay, I'm okay. I'm lovable. Especially when you say like the systems really did fail you. I'm okay saying that. Of course they did. Of course we did. Every system failed you. And so that that's the challenge, right? That's the challenge. And like you lost community, you didn't know where to turn. And in the midst of it, you started to soap to hope. <laughs> Right. right. And so like, is it because so you created kind of what you needed? Is that is that kind of what it was? Or tell us more about that, because this is what is so amazing is that there's you've created this advocacy, awareness, harm reduction, extraction, support program for people who are being sex exploited, trafficked, addicted. Well, what started when I was able to kind of crawl out of a fetal position of this trauma pocket that I was in, I was able to start being a little voice. And I I, I don't know if it's practical, divine or not, but I was able to meet some other survivors of trafficking or exploitation or sexual assault or different things that weren't just like addiction, right? So I got to build an a new community a little bit and open the door for me to shed some light in a really dark tunnel just back into the recovery community and be like we support you even if you are in a dark area or you know what I mean like and I've always been into service I love service and so really I was like I like maybe we met a few people that had done some outreaches like doing like they've done a couple of them where they've done kind of where they've held it out hygiene bags and done some different things right really on a small scale maybe really family orientated maybe with their programs and we I got to witness that a little bit 
But when you witness that and now you know your story, you get to see the observation is a little bit different, right? Like your awareness, your clarity, your and you get to see some of these vulnerable communities, isolated areas as differently where I saw a lot of exploitation, high-risk sex working, pimping going on, abuse, you know, trafficking situations, our underserved population that is suffering from untreated mental health and untreated addiction and lacking resources and this gap that was going on where we have phenomenal people doing boots on the ground organizations out there, but like night, right? Like I'm, I, I love nighttime as it is. Like I'm an IL. And so like, I was, uh, I love, I was like, maybe there, I want to be there. Start very small. It's a service project. It was like, I'm going to grab a couple of hygiene bags and go out there and talk to people. I'm going to put myself out there and be like, hey, I've been where you've been, or hey, what do you need? Or hey, do you, hey, do you want food from 7-Eleven? Or I wanted to be out there and see and maybe get out of the place that I was at. Mm. and giving back, right? Just giving back. And like I said, when you're there, how much awareness happens. Right. And so who were you going to see at night? Like, where were you going? And where were you? We just started in some really vulnerable, isolated communities. If it was certain streets, certain back Mm -hmm. roads, certain hotels in our community, and really started off there. And like word of mouth got around, right? Where we, and we just, we just, we could only afford to do a couple of bags, maybe 20 and go on Tuesday, right? I don't know why we picked Tuesday, but it just happened to be Tuesday. And we'd show up every Tuesday and it happened for like six months in a row, right? And you'd put like in your bags, you'd put soap and toothbrushes and- Right, and a note. We'd put like, be strong. Hey, we love you. Don't give up. Like really, and we had time to do that. Like rem- I remember like I were, was working two jobs when you, I first started working with USARA. Like I still waitressed. I still worked with USARA. And I had to have a night, like a different night job to survive. I did for a while. And and some people would volunteer or donate to us here and there. They're like, hey, here's 20 bucks for that thing that we see you guys on Facebook doing. And we were just sometimes taking a snapshot and just being like, hey, out here doing some street outreach. Like nothing. Nothing, nothing where I thought it was going to be something. I'll tell you that right now. I had no idea Soap to Hope, what it is from that time. I really was just getting outside of myself in a really dark place. That's really all that was at the beginning. Thank God I've had some really powerful people and mentors and guides in my life that were like, hey, have you ever thought of making this a nonprofit? Like, hey, you're like doing some incredible stuff because there were some cool things we would share once in a while. Like, oh man, a girl asked us to get her out of trying to go to treatment or hey, you know, or like even the emotional stuff we shared once in a while. We're like, hey, like we showed up and one of our girls died of an overdose last week and hey, we got a girl in for testing. And it was just those really small, blurbs that we were using there was a couple of people that were like create something this would be cool like we would love to be a part of it or donate or do you know that people could donate or be more involved if you made it a nonprofit? and I was like oh lord I don't know if I want to do that that sounds way out of my league that <laughs> sounds like uh, I got to you know obviously get to help USARA with that program which was a beautiful bridge program and being a peer support services in a ER setting which was really cool because it's crisis and I love crisis and it was like hey and uh, get them into resources and kind of have a little bit of space with that, right? It was like the crisis. And so we were able to make it a nonprofit, Soap to Hope. And really trying to build that modality has been really hard and so freeing. Like it really, this night street outreach that helps people in these isolated, vulnerable communities, poverty areas, high-risk drug use areas, untreated, you know, resources area where it's not enough resources, where we were just handing them hygiene and handing them a harm reduction kit, 
learning from other harm reduction programs about syringe exchange and what they do and signing up and being approved to be a syringe exchange program. So then we could add a little resource to what we do, which was on a small scale at the time, like where, you know, we were doing just not as much as all the other harm reductions where they could do a full exchange where we were just handing people a bag of syringes and like building that connection and doing that process of what is legal by being an approved exchange. But we couldn't afford large scale buying all those things and getting condoms and handing them out and just connecting with people in those senses and just not missing Tuesday. Tuesday sometimes ended up being Thursday once in a while because a girl would call, right? She was going septic. She had an overdose. She was, just had a miscarriage in her hotel, uh, hotel room by herself. She just got raped. She just ha- got assaulted. She just lost everything because someone stole it. She just had a bad date because and couldn't afford her hotel. And she was about ready to end up home. Like she's already homeless, but now on the streets because she had some type of shelter. Like I was finding out that we were getting those phone calls because we were building trust. Think connection and building this place of safety for people to actually call us. Now we're going out a few other days a week, just me. And for a long time, it was just me going back out and following these guys and like meeting them at 11 o'clock night, two in the morning, looking for them after they called me. And digital equity is such a barrier out there, right? Most of these people don't have a phone. They don't have Wi-Fi. They don't have internet. They don't have services. And can you imagine being raped and not being able to call even 911? And like yeah. your community is lacking digital equity too. So that not even one, of, you can't run to one of them and say, can I have your phone? Put yourself at risk when you call police in those areas too, right? Now you are a snitch. Now you brought heat. Now you brought, so now they have a warm hotline to call and say, hey, January, this happened to me. Can you call me and pick me up? And then we can take them and remove them from that environment and maybe call the police. Maybe we can call a resource. Maybe we can get them up to the hospital to get a rape kit or maybe call something, figure it out. Or maybe they just for about five minutes and that's it. And so we're trying to create referrals like community partners and be a village in this area of human trafficking prevention, outreach programs, detox referrals, program options, public awareness, like us just on our social media platform or word of mouth or the people that we know that we are being able to bring enough awareness that exploitation, trafficking, low-end pimping, high-risk sex work is not consensual is happening in our area. There is some consensual, right? Like we want to support them too. Sex workers need to be heard too, that they have power of consent and have rights and they have resources to them too. We try to bring more awareness to the other. And obviously COVID was a turbulent time for anybody that any type of business, it didn't matter what it was. And so we were able to pivot and grow in that one, increase services, find a little bit more funding and really try to grow self-sufficiency among survivors and victims that and reduce that recidivism rate back into that life, uh, a diversion program. I don't know if we're quite the most solid is diversion program, but we're like part of helping these women learn more about who they are and supporting them in harm reduction, like really using harm reduction as a form of connection as a form as a resource and as a form of trust and offering this resource that 
people need. And I've been working now with so many community partners that are in law enforcement, human trafficking, you know, agents or other uh, victim services programs in the state of Utah, where now we've gotten a lot more on our resource list to refer these women out, do a, be a part of the village for these victims. If they want to build a case, if they don't want to build a case, they're still supported and learning about what, where the gaps fall with exploitation, trafficking, reporting. And it's, it's rampant. Like we're up there. We're not, Utah is, we need to be quit being naive, not only with, obviously when Darlene said like opioid and addiction trafficking, go, there's like a 30%, I think you said, but not only that, we have vulnerabilities and our underserved population and, and resources are at capacity and our criminal justice system is system is very not victim orientated and lacks education. I have a friend and a survivor that I work with that she said telling a sex worker that she deserves to be raped because that's her job is like telling a high rise window guy that you just if you fall you deserve to die because of your job the risk of your job. I think we're starting to break those barriers right we're starting to bring more awareness. And I think a lot of building that victim advocacy program on a street level works. This. Like works this. We're right here in the moment. We've been able to build community partners with volunteers coming out that are doctors, you know, Martindale Clinic, different vaccination teams, even uh, other street outreach teams, either other harm reduction teams or uh, community clinic, and really bringing our expertise by staying in the room with some of these women, walking them into the hospital or into their appointments. Oh, we'll be outside when you're done. So you don't feel as alone when you're leaving there or our effective case management is phenomenal, right? Like we are helping them walk to them, even if it's like helping them fill out an application, helping them get a service, like bringing the linkage to care to them with their hep C treatment, with their STD treatment, with their medications. Like we are in this community, so find them and we help people see you on Tuesday most everybody that sees us on Tuesday like everybody and then they call you when you're late right they find a way to call you and be like hey you're kind of like 20 minutes late and I'm like what and they're like yeah we've been waiting for you so <laughs> you're able to offer that linkage of like okay we'll bring your medication back to you every Tuesday so you have this and you're being treated and you are accessing services and not so alone in that effective case management supported peer support advocacy and even victim advocacy when it comes to some of our victims you you know, DV, d domestic violence in the homeless population is a different ballgame than somebody that's in a home, right? Like afraid to support or get involved because maybe they'll now get their drug taken away or maybe now they're known to be nosy or get in your business. It's not your, like that community can be very brutal. And so we do a lot of advocacy. Women now have resources right to them, numbers to call, emotional support, resources and referrals, assisting with safety plans, right? Like, yeah, and you get people. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're now creating different types of survivor, you know, safety plans, victim safety plans, different effective case management. If we have about this the other day, I had one area, I had eight positive hep C and one HIV positive. Like, what do we do now as an organization, right? Like now I need to increase my services for this population that we are disposing their syringes more frequently so they don't get stolen. They don't get just thrown in a trash can, like making 
making sure they have clean harm reduction supplies, navigate all kinds of stuff, medical systems, correction systems. I mean, a lot of these girls have, you know, open warrant and a lot of them don't want to go into treatment anymore, or they've just been in this recycled system and really work with survivors too. And finding survivor trauma-informed compassion organizations outside of the state for these women to leave, to get transported, Mm -hmm. to be safety, get flights, get their IDs, get their documentation. I've gotten quite a few women that have been trafficked, exploited, domestic violence, working with other survivor organizations. Well, I mean, what you're doing and what you've grown into, it's really remarkable. And I, I know you don't only work with women. I know you work with men. You work with transgendered folks but on both sides. You work with non-binary. You work with humans. Right. Yeah. And you, what you do is really in, incredible and inspiring. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for what you Absolutely do. It, <laughs> yeah. It's just so amazing what you've grown. Human trafficking awareness right now, like even supporting local nonprofits that are getting involved in this. Traffickers are getting more strategic and business. Yeah, oh, sure. they're charismatic, tactical. Strate- oh, I love that you brought that up January. Cause I mean, I think that brings up another type of just trafficking because I knew nothing when Paula brought up this topic I'm like I've got to do some research and so we I mean we talked about a lot of like trafficking among sex workers and definitely among children and I think it's so important January that you brought that up that there is no such thing as child prostitution that's human trafficking we need to get that message out there they talked about, especially with our immigrant population, we have so many. We need to be aware that, that this promise of a job, traffickers will use that over their head, that they're going to turn them in. They will come use people in these deplorable con- living conditions and work conditions. It's happening all around us. I mean, I think that's another thing. And it's like you said, with the internet, they use stories as well. This is from Polaris as well, but they just said tales of romantic love, everlasting love, good jobs, fair wages, all of these. It sounds too good to be true. It is. Those should always raise a red flag. I, I mean, those vulnerabilities you've talked about, like anyone who has unstable living situations, trauma, are all are the most common. What can we do? So like we want to, as a medical community, especially as those of us who are interested in addiction and, and trying to help the medical treatment of substance use, can you give us three things or give us a few things you wish you had had or you need us to do for your people? Like how can we show up better? What can we do better or at all because <laughs> we're not doing anything a lot of times oh man that's like the if I had a genie and I could rub it and and we've talked quite a bit is everybody that enters these systems and even the medical field or addiction field like they need to be treated as a human and seen however they look regardless they need to be treated with compassion and conversation and and maybe maybe you are burnt out for the day you've seen 30 people like but there's you guys have so many systems in place bring a crisis worker in whatever those systems are or bring in a case manager or maybe call resources in your community local nonprofit it's pure work, you know, putting solutions in bathrooms for women, like put up signs. Hey, are you being abused? Hey, do you feel unsafe right now? Hey, do you feel, have you been experiencing trafficking, exploitation? Maybe have some flyers or pamphlets in these areas because most of people that come into the medical system have to take a urine test, something, maybe have those in there and say, Hey, if you feel unsafe right now, mark this cup with black. Hey, let's move her and say, Hey, we need to go talk. I want you to come talk to this lady real quick. And then, Hey, we saw that 
mark on your cup? Do we need you? Do we need to call law enforcement? Right. And giving girls some kind of like, you know, choice, but like enough signs that you see her that those are in there that maybe they have a solution to say, put that X on that cup and say, Hey, I'm at risk. I'm at risk. That's such a good idea. Right? Like I'm I've at never risk. thought of that. But it's like the safe word. Yeah, it's like a safe word, you know, but for your kid, yeah. your kid. It's a great yeah, idea. And and learning, you know, get, taking the time to learn a little bit. Like there's so much information out there that I even had to learn as an organization, as a survivor of the signs, inviting survivors to the table. Can we bring in a speaker? Can we bring in? Yes. Okay. So that, so you've said so many good things, but this is so, I love this, that medical schools, residencies, hospitals, anything can invite a survivor to come and talk and teach us. I think I, I, I learned so much from you. Every time you open your mouth, I'm like, oh, <laughs> January. Okay. So, you know, that's the opportunity that we have, right? Is to learn there's resources available online, recognize the signs, and then listen and listen and listen to people who've been through it as to what we could do. Oh, yeah. Because like I said, I mean, there's the so uh, last week, you know, like a girl that like absolutely is in love with her trafficker, right? And and I had to learn a lot from her. Like I had to approach that so different. There's nothing specific. I think a lot of times January and at Darlene, I know you'll agree with me on this medical, the medical side of things, we're scared to ask or we, we maybe know what to ask, but then we don't know what to do next. That is so true. True. It's like, well, what do I do with you? I mean, what I don't know what to do with you. There's no what resources like that's the thing. That's why advocacy is so important. And your mantra and the silence is so important because we have and we need to create these services. Why don't we have trauma informed care for complex trauma? Your personal story, you know, it speaks of complex trauma that requires complex treatment and long term treatment. That's different from people who just have substance use disorder, in, you know, in quotation well, and that's marks. Truth, or, most of these women only get mm -hmm. access to county funded addiction treatment centers, right? Like you have a problem with addiction. This would have never happened if you had addiction. And that is, and we're putting them in these really high risk environments that are co-ed men, they're yeah. intermixed. And so we actually send a lot of our women that are actually reporting the trafficking. We get them hopefully enough crisis housing, like a hotel or a voucher working with all of us or coming out of pocket. I don't know how many times I've come out of pocket, probably haven't eaten for two weeks because I'll pay for a hotel for somebody, find a program out of state and then find a team that is volunteer based that are old military or ex-cops that are in this sector that want to help these women that will now transport these women. Yeah, we need to do better. We've got to soap to hope. Maybe that'll be your next thing. You keep writing grants, January, you keep getting the funding and we've got to answer the call. But you know what I really learned from you, January, and I, and I read this, but it really hit home to me. And I think this is the most important thing just as physicians. And I, I mean, it's just what January's out there doing is just this outreach is just remembering that the goal isn't always rescue. It's just trying to get out there and improve their health and improve their safety. I, th I think that's what Paul and I struggle with is we think, okay, this person, if we think they're being trafficked or they identify as being trafficked, we immediately have to try to remove them from the situation. And it's like what you're saying, you're doing someone, they may not want to be removed or it might be too dangerous to remove them immediately. And then if we think we can't do that, then there's nothing that can be done. And that's not true. You've just taught us that there's so many things that can be do. We just got to harm reduction. We've got to support them. 
And Paul and I, we can adopt, we can offer addiction treatment services so we can remove that piece so they're not controlled by that addiction. We can remove that where their trafficker no longer has that power over them with the addiction. If we offer them that, we can just, again, I love that part, meet them where they are, give, improve their health and safety wherever we can. Let them direct it. What do they need from us? Ask them. Yeah. And harm reduction is key. It comes down to reducing the harms. And like that's what I think that's why January's they expanded into a syringe exchange program just to be able to provide even more of that risk mitigation. And I couldn't agree with you more. You said it so eloquently, Darlene. So there is a lot we can do, even though it feels a little bit hopeless, I call then. What can we do? There is a lot we can do. And sometimes just like what I heard January say too, is just be nice, be kind. Don't treat people, you know, don't make assumptions about people or make have judgments about people. Just treat them with care and compassion and allow them the space that they need. Our outreach sometimes can get a little high risk. We have to maneuver and pivot. I mean, just a couple of months ago, we absolutely, there was a girl dying in, you know, in the park we were at, like septic, been there for a while, like losing the ability to even get up and eat bell movements and smell like urine. And she was, we had a medical staff with us and they were like, hey, we got to get her to the emergency room. We cannot leave her here. Legally, we can't. Like we got to do something. And in this time, there was a lot of gangs around that area. There was a lot of, there was a lot of high risk situations that we could not call to come there or ambulance like we just couldn't right and what we decided to do was get her into a vehicle and drive her down the road and then call the ambulance to come and we did and and it was just us all collaborating in that moment knowing that we weren't going to leave her there I've had a lot of those moments that's it that's you just that's it that's what we have to do is, is I I get to reflect on some of the things we've got to do and those miracles that have happened and and this community and I'm like oh I've got to do something really epic for a couple of years <laughs> well you you keep going and thank you you're amazing bridge between between us and thank you for telling your story. I know that's you you know that takes a lot to be vulnerable and tell your story and it's a lot more brave than most of us <laughs> out here who appear to have it together. You you have a lot more together, believe me. <laughs> so thank you so much January. Thank you for what you do and thank you for being willing to share and you know share your voice and share your personal story and tell us about your organization. If anyone who's listening wants to learn more about Soap to Hope, they can Look them up on uh, so Facebook. Facebook, or we have a website, soaptohopeut.com. Soaptohopeut.com. And the two, two is a number right. two. <laughs> yeah. So soap number two, hopeut.com. And you can look at what January's doing and, and support her, give her money, uh, send her uh, hygiene supplies. They always need wound care supplies and human hours as well. And if you have a special expertise, maybe she could use. Yeah. Oh, and handwritten notes. You'll never believe that those handwritten, handwritten notes, notes are the most. That's it. Every hotel room we go in on the back side of that hotel room door, they have every note taped to that door. It, that's something they get to read that says, hey, be brave. Hey, you're strong. Hey, you matter. Thank you. Two resources. So there's a hotline. So this is one 373 And then text 233-733-BE-FREE. Those are U.S. numbers. Thank you so much, January. This was fantastic, and we have learned so much. Until next time, hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. 
content of the podcast are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.